I can teach you how to set a course. I can teach you how to build a tent. I can teach you how to put up a structure. What I cannot teach you is if you walk past a piece of trash on the ground, you pick it up and throw it away, um, or snip the end of a zip tie, or slow down enough to chat with some of the participants or volunteers. Um, that is the care. Like um, I can teach you a lot, but I can't teach you the care. And that's the that's the big divider between just doing your job um, or JE just enough and that little bit more. Uh, the slow down and check in goes a long way, and that's uh, that's the uh, can't teach care. <laughs> What's up, everyone? That was Ted Metellus. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Every week on this show, I glean insight and inspiration from athletes, coaches, and others to help show you what's possible through the lens of running. I also put out a weekly newsletter. It's conveniently called The Morning Shakeout, which comes out on Tuesday mornings and features an eclectic and interesting roundup of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to lately. You can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and your first issue will arrive next week. Okay, I'm super excited to share this conversation with you. It's with my former competitor group colleague, current race director for the New York City Marathon, and just one of the best people in the entire running industry, Ted Metellus. Ted, who was born and raised in the Bronx, is the first black race director of an Abbott World Marathon Majors event. He is also an avid runner with 33 half marathons and two marathons to his credit. In this episode, we cover all sorts of ground. I learned when running first came into Ted's life, how his relationship to it has evolved over the years, and what it's meant to him over the past two years that we've been navigating a pandemic. Ted told me about the path that he's followed in event operations, logistics, and management, what it's like being a black man in an overwhelmingly white sport and industry, what he means when he says that you can't teach care, and a lot more. Before we get into this one, I'd like to thank Tracksmith and the members of our Patreon community for making this episode possible. Tracksmith is a brand for committed runners like you and me. They aim to celebrate, support, and contribute to running's distinct culture in everything that they do. From offering considered and original products for training, racing, and recovery, to creating experiences that make running more rewarding, more connected, and more meaningful. The brand's latest initiative, the Tracksmith Foundation, a nonprofit led by Russell Dinkins, is one such example. The goal is simple, yet ambitious to give more people the opportunity to participate in track and field. This is a mission that I believe in and I want to support in any way that I can. As such, when you shop at tracksmith.com slash Mario, where you can also check out my favorite apparel picks for getting through the worst of winter, and or if you use the code Mario22 when you check out, you'll get free shipping on your order and 5% of your purchase will go to the Tracksmith Foundation. Tracksmith didn't ask me to do this. I asked them if I could do this as part of our partnership and they agreed to it. I've seen and experienced firsthand how track and field can change people's lives. It introduces you to a wide range of people with different abilities, 
backgrounds, religions, races, and socioeconomic statuses. It forges lifelong friendships. It teaches discipline and hard work. It can literally and figuratively take you places, and it will make you a better version of yourself off the track as well. I want more people to experience all that this great sport has to offer, and I'm proud to be partnering with a brand that's actively working to help create those opportunities. The Morning Shakeout's Patreon community is where super fans of the podcast and newsletter can support my work directly, interact with me, and also gain access to some exclusive content like the Weekly Rundown, which is a Patreon-only podcast that I co-host with my friend Billy Yang, a monthly Coach's Corner discussion where I cover training-related topics with a fellow coach or coaches, and other fun perks such as merchandise and behind-the-scenes sneak peeks that pop up from time to time. You can join for as little as a buck a week at themorningshakeout.com slash support. A big thank you to all of you who are already members. Your support means so much to me and will help keep The Morning Shakeout sustainable for a long time to come. Okay, last little thing. We had some issues with Ted's mic, so I apologize in advance for the scratching sounds throughout this one. Otherwise, the audio is clear, the conversation is great, and I hope you enjoy this episode with New York City Marathon race director Ted Metellus. All right, Ted Metellus, I've been super excited for this for quite a while now. Welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you so much, Mario. Thank you for having me. It's good to reconnect with a fellow CGI alumni. Alumni, I know. I mean, we're out and about in the world these days, all over the running industry. Um, wow. And you are you are still doing the logistics and ops things at races. We're definitely going to talk about that. But before we really dive in, I want to get my selfish question out of the way first. When I was researching for this conversation, I read that you make Cafe Bustelo, which yes. is a strong Latin Caribbean coffee. Now, I love coffee. You clearly have an affinity for it as well. Fill me in. What exactly is Cafe Bustelo and how do you prepare it? So Cafe Bustelo, uh, or as we like to say, wake up and smell the Bustelo and say hello. Uh, it is a um, Latin... Uh, Latin American coffee. It's basically like an espresso. Mm -hmm. So it's a strong uh, coffee. It is, uh, I make it on my Keurig. I have one of those like um, reusable Keurig things just to kind of keep the world a little greener. And I just fill it up. I drink it uh, with a little Splenda. And it's amazing. My mom and dad made it years ago. Um, there's other comparable Caribbean coffees that have like that special strong uh, kind of kick. But yeah, yeah. Cafu is where it's at. Okay. Uh, so you grew up with it. It was something that's been in your family and your household for as long as you can remember. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then Mario, if I need to hook you up and send you uh, uh, some Cafe Bustelo, I'll make that magic happen. <laughs> well, I think uh, once we get off of, of this recording, I'll hit you up separately and you'll have to give me your like list of instructions on how to make it properly. So I'd like to, I'd like to give that a go. Um, now we'll move into the yeah the the good stuff so to speak. I mean that's the good stuff for me because uh, now I got a new coffee recipe that I can I can put to use. But I know you for your expertise in event operations and logistics, which we're going to talk about later in this conversation. But I don't know much about you as a runner. When do you first remember the sport coming into your life? Uh, I remember growing up in the Bronx on Marion Avenue in a neighborhood called Bedford Park Boulevard, and in the summertime and having races with the kids. 
on the block. Who can run to the end of the block and back the fastest? And uh, that was like my basic introduction to running. And you know, you're inner city kid, bicycles, playing stickball, like all that stuff was a thing. But specific to running, that was it. And it was always fascinating. Now in retrospect, as an adult, you think about it, but the older kids always beat you. You know, they ran faster, they were stronger, but you tried so hard to keep up, catch up, or beat them. But that was always the goal, because at the end of the day, at the end of the summer, you wanted to be known as the fastest kid on the block. Yeah. Was it the competitive element that was most appealing to you? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And just and just wanting to, year over year, every summer, uh, watching, you, you don't gauge your own uh, growth as, as a young person, um, but you, you realize that, oh, wow, like Mario didn't beat, you know, Ted last year, but Mario's now beating Ted at these races, like these little, little sprints that we used to have on the block. And then now somebody's gunning for you, Mario, and seeing who can run, <laughs> outrun you on these little races. I love it. When did you formally join a, a running team or start pursuing the sport with any real intention? Uh, it was... 1990, no, I'm sorry, 1980, oh my God, I'm old, 1989, uh, uh, All Hallows High School cross country uh, and track team, it's an all boys high school in the Bronx, uh, about three blocks away from Yankee Stadium, and uh, like most kids, we tried to get on the basketball team, and uh, you know, smart enough that the cross-country track coach would always stand by the sidelines and be like, if you can't get in the basketball team, another great team sport is track. And uh, that was what got me into it, uh, running uh, first cross-country and running in Van Cortland Park, uh, you know, with the team there and, and, and the, the training and doing loops around um, the track and, which is funny because it's the McCoon Dam Park track, which mm -hmm. is basically where New York Roadrunners was founded. And like, I didn't know that as a kid, you know, but yeah, it was out there learning, running, running with the team, um, going to these meets and whatnot. It was so foreign, uh, but it was, it was cool because you just were all with the guys together and Saturday mornings you'd meet at school and get your gear and head out in the hammer. Did that competitiveness from the street races that you partook in as a kid carry over to when you were running on the cross country and track teams? Absolutely not. Because <laughs> I learned quickly that um, the, the, the little block sprint races that we did were way shorter than those coast country runs uh, in the back hills of Van Cortland Park. Um, I, I got I to gotta interrupt. When you joined the cross country team, did you have any idea like how long the races were or how long you had to run in training? Hell no. There was nothing. <laughs> I mean, come on, Mario. Think about it. Like These kids jump into this thing. They Unless you uh, – and again, that's the – you know, call it beauty because it's ignorance. Ignorance is blessed. You're in a city kid. Like, you weren't doing – there wasn't track camps and things like that back when I – especially in the 80s. Yeah. In, like, late 70s, 80s when I was a young, when I was a young buck. Um, that wasn't a thing. So you didn't know what a distance was. I mean, there's still people to this day that do a 5K and think they're in a marathon. I know. Which is pretty funny. I mean, when I worked <laughs> in specialty running, you'd have people come in the store – all the time and they'd be like no 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 I'm not I'm not really a runner um you know I I just do 5k's or you know I I finished that 5k that 5k marathon they combine the two words it's like every running race has to be a, a marathon of some sort but to some people a 5k does feel like a marathon so I get it exactly and then you just 
I think the position that we're in right now, Mariana, in, in the space of the sport of running and the industry running is to teach people and demystify mm-hmm. running to some degree. But to your earlier question, I had no clue the distance. I was always the slowest guy on the team. I always came in last. It was inevitable. There was a little bit of walking in the mix. But um, similar to the earlier story about every summer watching yourself grow as the season went on, I got better and got stronger um, and started hammering through. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a pretty amazing experience when we won the, like, Bronx Catholic High School Championship for, like, our, our region or our age group. And, uh, you know, for an, old, for an old dude that doesn't have the greatest memory, I remember it was Halloween Day. It was pouring rain out there. It was, you know, all of us out there. It was Mount St. Michael's, Cardinal Hayes, like all these, you know, schools, Catholic high schools that were out there. And you would appreciate this as, as, as a coach. All of the training runs that we did in crap weather got us to win that race that day because it was crap weather that day. It was raining. It was gross. Um, as soon as the, the, the gun went off, like a lot of guys were slipping and falling and our team just moved and it was, it was awesome. I love that that memory is still so vivid in your mind all these years later. It's pretty incredible. I think about it now and again, uh, probably in life I'll have to like sit down and really like reminisce, put things on paper or be in settings like this where you can rap about things with folks. But I, I, I won't forget that. That was probably to have a bunch of inner city black Latino kids just so happy. Like we, we did it. And we're, we're a little school. I had a graduating class of 90 boys. So like itty bitty. And we beat those big monster schools and whatnot. And uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a pretty awesome moment. Did you grow to love the sport during those years? No, I was too young. I had no concept of it. Um, my love for the sport, and it's interesting, we, we should definitely dive into this in this conversation where it's like, do I have a love for the sport? The sport, uh, my love for it has only developed in the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an activity that we did. Um, one of my colleagues down in Miami, um, I don't know if you know Frankie Ruiz, who's uh, one of the founders of the Miami Marathon. Mm-hmm. He has a very, very, very successful cross-country team um, down there that he's the head coach of, um, Belen Academy. And um, I think about him because he used to say something often when we went on recruitment um, trips to invite people to run in the Miami Marathon and Half Marathon out of the races that we produced down in South Florida when I lived down there. And he said that people used to treat running as punishment. You know, oh, you messed up. Go go run, you know. Oh, you you showed up late. Go run, like that kind of a thing. And it was so interesting when you think about that. Like running mm-hmm. isn't punishment. Like if anything, um, running is is a gift to be able to take and partake in. It reminds me of a T-shirt that I think still exists somewhere, and it says, I think it's like a lot of cross country and track teams that wear this. It says, "Our sport." is your sports punishment and there is a lot there is a lot of truth to that i remember in basketball if i screwed up i'd have to do wind sprints in soccer i had to run laps of the field Uh, and that was always it wasn't something that you know maybe i look forward to it because i like to run but you know the coach was assigning it to people because they they did something wrong and supposedly that was supposed to correct something but i think to your point like that is especially at a young age, very impressionable upon someone if they look at this thing as a punishment because then they're going to try to avoid it as they move on in life. Exactly. And it's not seen as a draw or appealing. And 
my college roommate came to visit and we were chatting a little bit and um, he was saying to me, it's like, it's really fascinating that running isn't bigger in inner cities um, because all you need is a pair of shoes. Um, but again, that goes back to the demystification of the, of the sport of running. It's like actually no sport activity or function is without guidance direction teaching you know you apply those things and you go from you know just uh scrolling on a piece of paper to making art from just making noise to making music uh, just kind of running the fastest on the block to being one of the most you know world-class athletes in the world i know in your adult years you've run a number of longer races half marathons marathons but when you got out of high school, did you keep running in any capacity or did you spend time away from the sport? Yeah, I spent a good chunk of time away from the sport and the activity. Um, uh, I, I, I ran in high school for about two and a half, three years. Mm -hmm. And then I got heavily involved in um, student activities and programming. Obviously, academics was, was, was the goal because you, know, you go from high school to college and that was going to be the way out. Um, what was really fascinating, Mario, because you talk about running as a like we were rapping about running as a punishment when you play basketball i played a lot of basketball in high school and i played a lot of basketball in college which kind of kept me in some sort of shape i didn't play for my school like intramurals and yep. pickup ball and even after uh, uh college i continued to hoop and one of my saving graces was i had I had wheels. I had wind. Like I could move. I could run. Um, it was easy. It was effortless for me. And yeah. it all came back from you know the youth of being able to run. And you think about that in retrospect, where people are like, man, we can't keep up with you. And I was like, what? It's it's this is nothing. Yeah. And uh, it's because of the running. But running didn't come back to me until I came and joined uh, the New York Roadrunners. What year was that? So my. My first stint at the, at the organization was 01 as a contractor um, mm -hmm. working at the marathon. Uh, and when I came on board, uh, 01 was my, my first stint there. And I, I came on board full time as an employee and I was there for about three years or so. And um, I was, that was what inspired me to the sport of running, the activity of running. Um, and less on the pro side, because I had no concept of that. I'm now right. figuring that out because it's part of my gig. But the, the middle to backpackers and watching that elation that they had when they when they crossed the finish line and how happy they were, I was like, that, that's it. And that's what turned me on to going out. I was like, you know what? Let me get back into running and let me see what this is. What's your own relationship to running look like today? It's therapy. You know, um, I, I, I was thinking about this conversation and, and this specific question, and um, I think about 2020 and what happened. So mm -hmm. March of 2020, pretty much the world shut down, and uh, we were all forced to be inside for, you know, and alone uh, for a lot. Of, you know, I'm not married and I don't have children, so um, I was home a lot by myself, and I was seeing somebody, but they were on the West Coast. Long story short, my only out was running. Get up in the morning every single day, and I hammer. Um, you said before I've run a, bun a bunch of races. I've run 33 half marathons and two full marathons since 07. Um, so like 07 is when it clicked. That's when I was like, I'm going to run races and do this. But running, I don't want to say running saved my life because people say that all the time, but running kept me so sane 
and it made me so happy and it was the one thing that started every single day off right yes yeah i had very similar experience i mean i don't travel quite as much as you but i was traveling quite a bit before everything shut down and i really i mean i got on a plane for the first time this past october to go to boston for the marathons had been quite a stretch but i was in this routine every day and it started with a run at 7 or 7 30 and regardless of what else happened that day i could count on that and that really kept me grounded i think and you know to your point like kept me sane as well and i feel like that's the role that it plays for a lot of people in general, but certainly over the past like 22 months or so. Oh yeah, it was it was great. And you know, as a runner, um, your evolution of running, you know, you start small, you, at least for me, um, I wanna project, but like my running started with time first and distance. I'm gonna run for 10 minutes. I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna run for 10 minutes and see how I feel. I'm gonna run for 15 minutes and I build and build and build until I was able to run for a longer distance and then, um, Working by Central Park, you have the beauty of the northern loop, the middle loop, and the southern loop to kind of get your wheels underneath you and build yourself up to being able to do an entire loop of the park, and uh, you know, which is a six-mile loop for you know plus minus, and um, that it was you. You get in your head, and then once you were able to get out of your head. Um, that was the beautiful thing of running and your maturation in running. Um, not necessarily having to, like, I have to run with and listen to music. I don't have to listen to music when I run now. I'm listening to podcasts, I'm listening to the news, or I'm not listening to anything. Um, you start to notice things uh, as you continue to mature and grow in running that you didn't look at before. And that was one of the big takeaways of 2020 was running through parks in my neighborhood, in my community, and, like, looking up and soaking it all in and watching, like, you know, looking at trees and looking at birds and there's a couple of hawks in my neighborhood. Like that kind of stuff was amazing. Yeah, let, let me, let's go down that road a little bit. Did you notice things during that time that previously just like were never on your radar? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and maybe because I was moving so slow uh, <laughs> that I was able to see things. But yeah, it was uh, it, it was it's beautiful. Like you slow down. Yeah. Like you're still moving, but you're like, you're soaking it all in. Like yes. you're, um, music, for example, I'm a huge music person. Like you can hear music or you can listen to music and like you're running or you're like really like soaking it in. And, um, the runner's high Mario that I'm sure you related to and you've shared and you probably heard lots of people talk about when you are paying attention to your breathing. Um, you're paying attention to the sound of your feet hitting the ground, that rhythm that you start getting, and it's almost like musical, like it's like, it, mm-hmm. like it's like beating of a drum, and it is the best feeling in the world. And uh, yeah, like those were the things that started to reconnect with me big time. Yeah, I I know what you mean. So I experienced something similar here in the early part of 2020, and and throughout the rest of that year into last year. I mean, I think because I was running mostly just from home. And it was very repetitive and I was running like similar loops like day in and day out without those like natural breaks that would occur when I would have to go travel somewhere or just not be home for whatever reason. I just started to notice things that I hadn't noticed before and it just completely changed the experience of it for me in a positive way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then the beautiful thing, um, one of our friends and colleagues 
used to say this all the time, and, I, and it's so true, and I've said it as well. Dan Cruz used to say all the time, like, best way to see, to see a city is by running in it. Mm-hmm. You know, back in our past lives with rock and roll, when we would do site visits, walkthroughs, logistics, and planning, I would run our courses. I would run our routes to fully get the experience of the athlete and the participants experiencing things and see things. Even still to this day, I'll, I'll envision what the runner's going to see and where things are going to be along the route. Dan Cruz is going to love that you mentioned his name here on the show. (laughs) You mentioned how you first started doing contract work for New York Roadrunners in 2001, but Mm -hmm. I'm interested to learn how you got started on a career path in event operations, logistics, and management. Um, I... It started, I guess, in college, um, and I'll say this quickly. So when I was in school, I went to a small state school in upstate New York, about 45 minutes north of Syracuse, right on Lake Ontario, as part of the State University of New York um, School, SUNY Oswego. And um, small school, even smaller for people of color. Uh, but I made the most of the time that I was there, and I was very much involved uh, with the student activity boards that brought concerts, shows, and events and activities there. Um, booked acts like G-11 Special Sauce, um, Bill Bellamy, uh, Wyclef, uh, just to name a few different artists that I brought up to perform while I was there. And um, that transitioned into a professional career. I ultimately got my degree in uh, communication, broadcast, comm, and PR, and I thought I was going to move into the media space. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to work in radio stations, which I did for a little bit, and then I landed a job. Uh, randomly enough, uh, a friend was like, "Hey, this is isn't this something like what you used to do in college?" And it was with a cross country cycling event from Seattle, Washington to Washington D.C., raising funds for the American Lung Association, if I remember correctly. And uh, that was it. I took off and. You were hooked? Uh, I was big time. And it's all building, designing, creating experiences and helping people achieve their goal at the end of the day. That's ultimately what I do. What hooked you on that specifically? Like what what, what was it about all those things that you just kind of listed out? I mean, I'm sure it was all of it to, to some degree, but that like hooked you and you're like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing or this is what I want to be doing and pouring my energy into. It's um, you, You're creating something. You know, it's another form of creation um, or being creative and and another form of um, engaging people and creating an experience for people. I mean, that's ultimately what it is that we do. Uh, I've said this many times in event organizations. Like, if you're an event producer, you could be, it could be for weddings. It could be for a concert or a show. It could be for, like, a youth programming like at the end of the day there's core um similarities across all those things you know make sure people can get in safely make sure the experience is great make sure you have equipment and supplies timelines schedules all that stuff played into it so i was able to create i was able to be creative and work collaboratively with like-minded people that were all on the same point and uh i think about my mom a lot and and our parents in particular because i know your, your parents are from uh, uh, outside of the country coming in, mm-hmm. the classic of, uh, I equate this to mom doesn't sit until everybody sat down and ate. And you can kind of sit back and watch people enjoy that meal. I mean, that's basically what I do for a living. That's that's my Nana. Uh, yeah. My Nana would make sure that everyone was fed and on their second or third course, we actually had to go remind her, be like, Nana, no, you sit down and eat now. Uh, but she just wanted everyone else to have that 
experience and she was the one who orchestrated that's beautiful man yep that's totally what it is man and that's the coolest thing too especially being behind the scenes now i'm a little bit more front of front stage yeah you can't Uh, hide anymore (laughs) no there's no hiding for me but that's the coolest thing though it's like you serve up the experience in those early days of doing the cycling event across the country, your early contract work with New York Roadrunners and other things that you were involved in. Did you have any vision of a, of a career path, like where you ultimately wanted to end up? Or was it just kind of taking advantage of opportunities and seeing where it would take you? Uh, the, the short answer is yes. Um, the, I, I wanted to be involved and engaged. I definitely wanted to grow uh, and learn. And that's the beautiful thing about this industry in particular. I didn't have uh, dreams of being race director by any means, um, but I did have dreams of being one of the best event producers in the game. And uh, I wanted to, uh, and I did, fortunately, I can say, like, I had the opportunity of going to a lot of amazing places and do incredible events with really, really talented people. And every single place I went to, I took a little bit from that and applied it to the next place and so on and so on and so on. So um, that was ultimately the goal. I read something once that had a profound effect on me, which is career paths should not be looked at as a ladder that you climb, but more an obstacle course that you navigate. Because um, you may get something that's like super easy, like, oh, I can walk across this little plank, and then all of a sudden you you, you navigate like a wall that you climb, but the, the next wall is bigger, and the next plank's thinner, and you have to work, work and navigate through those things. I might be jumping around a bit here, but the next question that came to mind for me, what is it like for you being a black man in overwhelmingly like white sport and industry, specifically here in the U.S.? It's, uh, I, I can tell you it's funny. You don't necessarily, I, I, I shouldn't say I didn't know, notice it. I've always been like the, the OBG, the only black guy, or the OBG, the other black guy in a room when you walk in. Um, I leveraged my skill, ability, talent, and experience to speak volumes for me. Um, I saw that firsthand Mario producing rock roll races in the South. So here here I am, this fast-talking, fast-moving New Yorker who just happens to be black that's in a room in Raleigh, North Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Virginia Beach, Virginia, like all these southern towns, and I'm, I'm the man. I'm the one that's running the point here. Like everybody's asking me, you know, what's going on? How do we do this? How do we execute it? So on and so forth. So was I hyper aware of who I was as a black man in that room? Yeah. But I also knew that I was, you know, no disrespect to anybody there, the smartest guy in the room. Like everybody's there to listen to me and get guidance for me and get direction for me. Um, so take that and travel the country and travel the world. I don't ever, uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I never felt uncomfortable being in a space. Um, and I think the first time I had a, a wherewithal of my race in the room that I'm in, like read the room as the kids would say today, was in college, um, like my freshman year. And I'm sitting in a, in a, in a comms class of some sort And I made a reference to an old 70s TV show called Good Times in that room, and no one knew what I was talking about. And that's when I realized, I was like, oh, shit, I'm the only brother in this room. No one's ever watched Good Times. So Yeah, they they grew up differently than I did. (laughs) Big time, big time. Mm -hmm. So there's a level of awareness, but also um, I think it powers you through to make sure that you represent well. 
along these lines, what does it mean for you as the first black race director of the New York City Marathon to direct the race that runs over the same course that Ted Corbett designed? It's, it's incredible. Um, you know, Ted Corbett was one of the first technical directors of the marathon um, and, and is a pioneer in the art and, of running, uh, the logistics of running. Not to mention he was a badass athlete in his own, but um, I think it's incredible there. The coolest thing, Mario, about being in this position is less about my story, but more people learning about the legacy of Ted and other people who kind of laid the groundwork to what I'm doing right now. Um, I think that if it's picking up a newspaper, listening to this podcast, watching something and seeing like, oh, this, what's this, like, wow, this, this guy looks just like me or a young person that is in the industry that feels kind of, oh man, I feel alone. I, I wish there were, you know, more people like me. And then they see me, you know, doing my thing. They're like, oh, I can, I can do this. Um, I think the same thing that Ted probably did for many people before him because he definitely did it for me. Do you feel the weight of that role and responsibility on your shoulders now? Uh, yeah, I, yes, I guess is the is the answer. And I don't want to sound like I'm I'm kind of throwing that answer away. Like I said, I've been in that position already. You know, um, granted, this is in a completely different stratosphere when you're talking about being the race director of the of the TCS New York City Marathon. But again, I'm standing in a room full of city officials, police, you know, uh, uh, city agency people in various cities and telling them what's going on and how things need to happen. I'm their source of information. So there's always been, again, a level of awareness of this. Um, it's, it's major. I'm hyper-conscious and aware, but it's also dope. Like, you know, like, like you see me and it's like, I'm just... I didn't go to fancy schools. I didn't come for money. I grind and work really, really hard. I love what I do. I love the people that I do it with, and it shows. What does it mean for you to direct the biggest and arguably the most visible marathon in the world in the city where you're from and grew up? It's, uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, I, you know... I st it still has a process to me, Mary. Honestly, I mean, the marathon was only two months ago, you know. Uh, so it it's it's amazing, you know. You walk through streets, you walk through neighborhoods. Um, I went to see a friend of mine in Brooklyn, and I was walking up Fourth Avenue, and I was thinking about the marathon, you know. Like, and I was like, I stopped, and like logistics Ted came on, and I was looking at the street, looking at how the flow was and how wide it is, and oh, they're doing some construction over there. I wonder whether if that's going to get cleared in time for the marathon next year. Like, uh, you know, it's a home, you're a hometown boy that's being able to do this, but I'm, I'm not the first. Like, there's been a couple of hometown boys. I mean, Fred LeBeau, obviously, um, was starting it all. Ted Corbett coming from the South for being, living and making the Bronx his home. But Peter Chach is a Bronx guy. Alan Steinfeld's a Bronx guy. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. At any point of your journey in this industry, did that thought ever cross your mind, even when you weren't an employee of New York Road Runners, that someday maybe I'll go back and work for the organization and it would be the dream of a lifetime to be the race director of the New York City Marathon? 
I, this, the latter part, no. I never thought that, like, I should say I never thought. That wasn't, like, a thing that was there. Coming back home, coming back to, to as I affectionately call it, the club, because it was once, you know, New York Orleans Club. Coming back to the club, that was always something that's on the back of your mind. And the coolest feeling in the world, Mario, is knowing that you can come home, you know? So when I came back to the organization um, in February of 2018, it felt good, you know? And, and I share stories about people that I work with and have met that are no longer alive that we have races named after them. Like, I met Ted Corbett. I met Joe Kleinman. I met Greta Weiss. I met Al Gordon. Like, these are people who I had the pleasure of interacting with as an event manager. And I could tell stories of who these people were and their interactions with me. Um, that is special, you know? Um, and even, like, I'll talk to Mary Wittenberg or I'll talk to George Hirsch about, about folks and whatnot, and I can tell the team about races that we are still producing to this day that I was an event manager for 20 years ago. You know, so I think that there's that, that by, by far is one of the coolest feelings. It's been a wild ride for you. It, it has been, you know, um, and I'm still grinding. Like, that's the thing. Like, we had a race last weekend, and I'm out there with the team and, you know, getting things set up and prepped and supporting them and talking to the participants and engaging with our volunteers and checking in with our parks people. Like, you know, I'm wearing a couple of hats, but, um, again, I love what I do, and I'm fortunate that I get to do it with amazing people, uh, and we serve a great community. You do more than just direct the TCS New York City Marathon in your role as a VP at New York Roadrunners, but specific to that job, which is a massive undertaking on its own, when you accepted the role, did you feel any extra pressure or an increased sense of responsibility? Like, shit, at the end of the day, this is all on me now. I'm not just a, a cog in the machine. Like, I'm the guy who's turning the machine on and off and people are reporting to me, et cetera. Yeah, it, it was, for sure, Mario. But I think what was bigger than me, the job, the role, is what was currently going on in the world. You know, like, it's everything that you just said during COVID, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I tell my team often, like, it's, it's the knowns and the unknowns. Like, you plan for the knowns and you prepare for the unknowns. The unknowns were crazy. Like, we didn't know what was happening. And the work that was involved was tremendous on the part of the entire organization, my team, to get us to a place that we can instill a level of faith um, in the city and state and federal officials to say, you can make this event happen. This race can happen. Um, that was, I think, that was bigger than me. Did you have a feeling after last year's race, which, as you just mentioned, only took place two months ago, so maybe you haven't had it yet. That Two months and seven days. <laughs> Not that anybody's <laughs> counting. But from here on out, if, if we could do that and get that race off the ground, given everything that was going on that we'd been through in the year and a half prior – it's going to be, not that it's necessarily going to be easier moving forward, but that we can do anything now. Absolutely. I mean, you know, not to sound like cliche-ish with uh, Frank Sinatra's, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. But, like, we did it. And what's really trippy, Mary, I was talking to some of the team about this when people were like, everybody, everyone was like, oh my God, can we do this? This is so crazy. Like, we're trying to navigate through this world. There's so many things that are, and I'm like, hold on, y'all. The knowns. Let's talk about what we know. We know where the start is. We know where the finish is. We know what the course is. We know that the city's going to support us. We know that all the partners are going to support this. 
think about how hard it was in 76 to say, we're going to take this race from inside the park and run through all five boroughs in a city that was going through financial strife, uh, economic issues, like the Bronx was on fire. Like, like that's hard. Not to, I'm not going to take away from what we did because that's pretty incredible. Like everybody deserve, definitely deserves to get their back, you know, pat on their back. But what I'm trying to, I was trying to put things in perspective in that sense of like, um, we have challenges, but we also have significant technology, great engagement. Like the 76 marathon, they were like, you're going to do this once and that's it. You're not going to do it ever again. Like, this is crazy. Like, what are you talking about? You're going to run 26.2 miles through the cities of the city of New York. Like what? Now we did it, you know, 50, 50 times now. And now it's a, a, like, well, with the 50th anniversary, the race has happened enough times where it can be done. And quite frankly, Mario, Similar to, you know, the group of kids that won that cross-country championship in the Bronx at Van Cortlandt Park on that Halloween rainy day, you think back and say, we can do this. We can, we can do this. We can make this happen. As a runner, it's hard to imagine the calendar year now without the New York City Marathon. Like you said, in 76, it was like, oh, this is going to be a one-and-done type of deal. But now, I mean, even if you're not a runner in New York, I think People in New York know, like that first Sunday in November, marathons running through the city. And if you got other things to do, you better plan well ahead of time because <laughs> you're going to have a lot to work with. It's it's true. And I think the coolest thing that's happening in our industry right now is some level of normalcy um, in, and, and that races and events are happening. And there's, a, so, there's such a great buzz that's happening out there. Um, I think that's the cool thing, too, is now people are starting to really get psyched up. And I, mean, I, I just registered for a race. You know, like I'm going to run a half, and I'm like, all right, I'm psyched. I'm like, all right, what's my next one? When is, when's the next one I want to do? So that is also a really cool feeling as well. I had a more generalized question for you. I mean, we're not out of the woods with COVID yet by any stretch. I mean, as we're having this conversation, things are surging. I mean, certainly across this country, but around the world. But how do you think the race industry is going to be permanently changed moving forward, given everything that we've had to navigate these past two years? I think the single biggest uh, piece of the race industry's change is a significant amount of collaboration and engagement. Um, there was probably one other time that I saw our industry come together really closely, and that was after the Boston bombing. Mm-hmm. And um, people sharing best practices for health and safety. Um, so I think that is also in play now, where the industry's like rooting for one another. You know, we uh, what was it? The Disney Marathon was this past weekend. Rooting for it. I want you to have an amazing event. I'm rooting for you. I want it to be great. Houston Marathons this weekend, I'm rooting for them. I want that to be great. Like, I think that that's one of the biggest pieces in it and that there's more collaboration and more engagement and more sharing of best practices across the board because it's in all of our best interests mm-hmm. to have safe, successful, uh, operationally sound events. What parallels do you see between working on a marathon as an event organizer and training for one as an athlete? Uh, Well, preparation for one. um, The better prepared you are um, going into the production of an event, uh, 
uh, and, and the better prepared you are going into running an event, the better the experience and operations will be. You want it to be seamless. You want it to be smooth. And there's a direct correlation in the two. Um, the other thing, too, is, is value and experience. There's value in your community, talking to people. Hey, Mario, how, how do I navigate through this? How do I get past that hump of, you know, that 15-mile-long run or whatever it is? Is it from training for a marathon? Or how do I work on negative splits? How do I become a better logistics person? How do I plan uh, accordingly? How do I engage my staff and, and community? All of that is value in communication and talking to those that are out there because they will help make your uh, production better and make your race day better. It's like the lessons that you learned coming up as an athlete, even in high school and training for races yourself have prepared you to do what you do now. Absolutely. It has um, in many ways. And I think the, the best, most incredible part of what I do is I've, I've worked on uh, triathlons, cycling events, walkathons, concerts, all that other stuff. Um, the coolest thing about this is I run and I produce running events. So I can take a second to take off my race production hat and put my participant hat on and look at it from that perspective. And I would say to my team things like, um, if you're going to take something away, what are you giving back from the participant experience side? Um, when you look at flow, like ingress, egress, how are people getting in and out? How smooth and seamless is that going to be from the participant side? You know, so it's a, it's a cool thing to be able to do that because not everybody can. And, um, you know, I, I referenced uh, my friend and colleague Frankie before. He said something really cool about running which was, it's the only sport that you'll ever be on the same playing field with the greatest in the world. Like, I'll never be on the same court as, the, you know, Michael Jordan in his prime when I was a kid, but I could be on the same, you know, I can run the same course as, as Kipchoge, you know, or Mab or something like that. That's the coolest thing about the, uh, the race. Okay, I've got a few more for you in the limited time that we have left. I'm not going to tell you who tipped me off to this, though, you might be able to guess, and we may or may not have mentioned his name already in this conversation. <laughs> but what do you mean when you say that you can't teach care? Uh, wow. Um, I could teach you how to set a course. I can teach you how to build a tent. I can teach you how to put up a structure. Um, what I cannot teach you is if you walk past a piece of trash on the ground, you pick it up and throw it away. Uh, or snip the end of a zip tie or slow down enough to chat with some of the participants or volunteers, um, that is the care. Like, uh, I can teach you a lot, but I can't teach you the care. And that's the, that's the big divider between just doing your job um, or JE just enough and that little bit more. Uh, the slowdown and check-in goes a long way, and that's, uh, that's the uh, can't teach care. <laughs> I love that. Where did that come to you, or how did that come to you? I, I don't know. I, it, just, I was, it was during the rock and roll time where we were working the uh, with competitive group of the rock and roll marathon series, and um, again, it's, the sl it's slowing down enough to engage and connect with people, um, being present. Uh, for folks, um, I think it also, it's probably a less eloquent uh, line that Maya Angelou had, which was, uh, you won't remember what I said, you won't remember what I what I uh, did, but you'll remember how it made you, made feel. you feel. Right. So that's the same kind of vibe, is like, you can't teach care, like, uh, you know, just showing love for the people you work with, for and around. 
I love that. And I mean, you just explained how that can apply for people who are working on events, but I think you can flip that. And people listening to this who are participants in these events, you can thank a volunteer. Oh you my can God. Yes. Thank the people, you know, who are helping to make this day possible for you. Uh, and I mean, that's something I also learned at Rock and Roll Marathon Series too, because these events don't happen, I mean, without you and your team, but without the volunteers that are out handing out water, giving you medals at the finish line, so on and so forth. Absolutely. Um, the single best feeling in the world is participants walking away, having, you know, just ran a race. They're like, get their bag or they get their medal or, or whatnot. They're leaving and they're like, thank you very much. Thank you so much. This was so great. Thank you. And, uh, you know, when we were talking earlier a little bit about the whole um, navigating through a world of COVID during the height of it, when we were producing races um, and getting races back, we were doing something called the Return to Racing series. And there were small, like a couple of hundred people that we were producing. People were so happy, so grateful and so thankful that we were back and running again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as participants thank people, be excited. Like, look what just happened to our world. And that easy little thing of registering and going out and running a race was taken away from you for, you know, months, if not years in some cases. And now they're back. Your career has literally taken you all over the world. But I know that you love to travel outside of what you do just for work and going to events. Is that how you developed your love for travel or had that been there before? Help me to understand where that comes from. Uh, so super quick, I, I would, I'm the youngest of uh, my siblings and they always were out and about and I always wanted to go away with them and go places with them, whether it was to the store or if they were going out to a party or something. So I always wanted to get out and see and do things. Um, I was, I love my career and I'm kind of, I uh, have an affinity for it because it allowed me an opportunity to see and explore. That gig in 1998 was the first time I traveled farther west in Jersey. And uh, I flew to Seattle, Washington and literally traveled across the United States and saw, you know, uh, uh, you know, the Badlands of South Dakota, I saw, uh, you know, Sitting Bull, I saw all of these amazing things as I traveled across the U.S., and that was my first exposure to it. So imagine getting that taste, that little bite, I, and that just kept going, and I've literally traveled, like you said, the world doing events, but also get to travel the world personally because um, you realize how, you know, how easy it is. You're the person to ask this question to. In all of your travels, what in your opinion, is the most underrated city for runners? Wow. Um, underrated for runners. Underrated for runners. That's a tough one, man, because um, a lot of the cities that we had events in were great running cities. Um, and what I would say to runners that have the opportunity to travel, um, to run a race in a market, or if you're getting away, Running in these cities are beautiful. First and foremost, I'll start with like the Phillies, the DCs, um, the Chicago's. Like those are amazing and incredible. Um, parts of Louisiana have incredible like trails that you can run along. Um, uh, I remember I went to Singapore and I was running around there and it was just breathtaking. And obviously you have to hammer early in the day because it's so warm there. Yeah, so you're yeah. out running just before the sun is rising. Um, 
the uh, there's a great space too if you ever get a chance to do this is um, the Red Rock Canyon in Nevada just outside of Vegas Vegas oh yeah it's beautiful beautiful there. beautiful beautiful so um, I mean I couldn't pick a place per se but like those are the places that popped into my head really quickly last question what's exciting you most about running right now whether it's your own pursuit of it the sport or the industry um, first and foremost being able to do it you know the fact that I was able to register for a race that did not happen last year and I'm gonna run this year I'm super excited about um, and having the ability to open up a calendar uh, and start writing things down and saying, and, and you know, Mario, you've done this, we've done this, your listeners have done this. You open up your calendar and say, what races am I going to run this year? You know, and you can start to plan. That is single-handedly one of the greatest experiences. I'm super duper psyched because you can set your goals for the races you're going to run. You know, I'm going to start off super slow with this race that I'm going to run next month, but the next one, I, the race I run in March be a lot faster, and then you start planning accordingly. So that's the coolest thing. The other things, too, that I think will be great as far as the sport and the industry is um, the opportunity to showcase some of the greatest runners in the world, um, particularly our U.S. runners that are stepping up big time. I think that's spectacular. Um, I think that seeing the next generation of uh, runners that are, um, you know, African-American, Latino, um, that are out and running and running in our races and being showcased. I think that's going to be pretty incredible. And um, as far as our industry is is involved, uh, the, the I mentioned earlier, just the collaboration and engagement there. I think people are super excited. Um, I mean, I can't wait to get to Boston and see colleagues and friends that I haven't seen in years. Well, I hope to see you in Boston. I will be there in April myself, not running, which means I get to have a little bit more fun. So maybe we can go out and uh, and share some more stories together. This has been super fun. Ted Metellus, thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Mario, thank you so much. Thanks for what you do for the industry. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to kick with you and your listeners. Okay, that's it for this week's episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to Tracksmith and the members of our Patreon community for making this episode possible. Tracksmith is a brand for committed runners like you and me. They aim to celebrate, support, and contribute to running's distinct culture in everything that they do, from offering considered and original products for training, racing, and recovery, to creating experiences that make running more rewarding, more connected, and more meaningful. When you shop at tracksmith.com slash Mario and or if you use the code Mario22 when you check out, you'll get free shipping on your order and 5% of your purchase will go to the Tracksmith Foundation, a nonprofit that aims to give more people the opportunity to participate in track and field. When you shop at tracksmith.com slash Mario and or if you use the code Mario22 when you check out, you'll get free shipping on your order and 5% of your purchase will go to the Tracksmith Foundation, a nonprofit that aims to give more people the opportunity to participate in track and field. The Morning Shakeout's Patreon community is where super fans of the podcast and newsletter can support my work directly interact with me, and also gain access to some exclusive content like The Weekly Rundown, which is a Patreon-only podcast that I co-host with my friend Billy Yang, a monthly Coach's Corner discussion where I cover training-related topics with a fellow coach or coaches, and other fun perks that pop up from time to time. You can join for as little as a buck a week at themorningshakeout.com support. 
Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He's edited every episode of the podcast and makes it sound great week in and week out. Also, thank you to my right-hand man, Chris Douglas, for handling sponsorship sales and numerous other initiatives, and Jeffrey Stern for the editorial and social media assistance. I don't have a big team here at The Morning Shakeout, but these three guys have been crucial in helping keep this ship afloat. Finally, if you're digging this podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe for an annotated collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>